Welcome to the Leaders in Learning podcast by Blue Consulting and Resourcing, the place to get up-to-the-minute information for cutting-edge learning design. Today we have with us Graham Edmondson, the Managing Director of Blue Consulting and Resourcing, and we're so glad to have you on the show. Welcome, Graham. Thanks, Joanne. It's obviously a pleasure to be here as well. Excellent. Now, you've been an innovator in the L&D world for quite a while now, and we're really pleased to be able to glean from your experience. <laughs> it's, the, it's the quite a while phrase that catches me a bit, but, uh, but yeah, in honesty, I, I have. Uh, I've been around L&D uh, probably for about 30 years now, and uh, as you know, prior to this role with Blue Consulting Resourcing, you know, I worked in Big Four Consulting, I run my own consulting uh, and then since, well, I guess, when you and I first started working together, what, six, seven years ago? Um, and, yeah, in trying in all that time to kind of keep at the front end of things. Uh, so uh, hopefully hopefully that experience is, uh, is going to be something we can, uh, we can bring to bear here. Great. I look forward to hearing your insights on this. So a lot of us instructional designers right now, we're really um, wrestling with the issues around COVID-19. So I'd like to get your take on what's the extent that COVID-19's really impacted your thoughts and plans regarding virtual training? Well, I mean, I, I don't think I'm any different than anybody else in the L&D world. I mean, I think it's, it's hit us uh, it's been an immense impact. It, it, it's knocked us for six in a sense, you know. I mean, virtual learning is nothing new to us and, and people have been working and delivering, designing virtual learning, but right now, that's all we're doing. So, so it's fundamentally, I think, changed everything for everybody because that's the only learning that we're designing and delivering. At this point in time so so I think the short answer is it's it's a huge fundamental shift something that although we've been looking at virtual learning uh, and kind of say playing with it what we see now is is a push which, which is an imperative saying that this is the way that we do it and it's the way we're gonna have to do it so there is no choice about this this is an absolute drive into a new world for some people uh, but this is a new reality. We keep hearing that phrase, the new norm. Uh, that this, is, this has changed and will change everything that every instructional designer and every facilitator does. That their day-to-day -day existence, I think, has changed fundamentally. Um, and I, I was reading something just yesterday. It was uh, somebody at Gartner. It was a, a quote said that basically, you know, right now, we're living through the largest live experiment in virtual working and virtual training that could ever be conceived. And we're part of that experiment, but there's no choice. We have to be. So how's the experiment going? Are we doomed for no significant difference? I mean, is this going to be a crash and burn for virtual training? What do you, what do you take on that? I, I think it's going to vary enormously. Joanne, when I say very enormously, I think there are some organizations, some people, and some methods that are going to be very successful. And, and, and in that situation, I think there's going to be a lot of success. In that kind of case, I think we're seeing that people will 
learn to do things that they will never unlearn. They will be so successful at it that it will be the way that they do things in the future. But I also think there's going to be some pretty uh, sad casualties. Uh, people, when I say people, I mean organizations as well as individuals who, who don't make that transition because they make a lot of assumptions that aren't borne out in reality. They will not succeed. And that's, that's a huge issue because make the mistake fail to succeed and you've got a credibility issue with a learner population that's going to be very very difficult to rebuild so i think the stakes are high i genuinely do that's an interesting um take on things what do you think are some of the biggest challenges that you think those who aren't going to be successful will face when they think about virtual training well, I think, I think it goes back to what I was saying. They, they probably don't really, I don't think, recognize just how different it is. I, I, and I'll be honest. I mean, I, I've talked to clients, uh, reputable clients, who in honesty, I think, have historically delivered, created and delivered really, really good learning solutions. But I just don't think they've yet fully appreciated the impact of this, that they're underestimating the significance and, and what needs to be done. And I'll give you an example. We were talking to a client who was conceiving, delivering a six-week onboarding program virtually uh, just a month after the, uh, the COVID-19 uh, announcements and changes in work habits. They said, well, it's scheduled. People are being hired. We're going to train them, and we'll just do it virtually. And, and that, for me, just captured the issue that we have because the bottom line is you can't just do it virtually. You know, can you imagine six weeks, six weeks of eight-hour learner days, nine o'clock till five o'clock with an hour for lunch being delivered virtually for a worker who probably didn't want to be working from home or learning from home, who may very well have a, a spouse, a significant other, a dog, whatever, in a place that was never designed for learning. I don't see how that happens. And I don't think, in that case, our client grasped that. So if it's fundamental to the idea that they think, uh, we'll just do it virtually, that means that they're going to do probably very little in terms of redesigning, uh, instructionally designing the learning experience itself, the facilitators will probably go at it very much like they have done successfully in the classroom. Uh, and that, to me, is the kind of template for, oh, no, that, that doesn't sound like it's going to work. There is so much you have to do. And if you don't grasp that, I think people are on the, the road for a, a few surprises and a few bumps. Yeah, I think it's pretty common that uh, folks don't see a big difference between a virtual learning environment and the classroom learning environment, other than the technology. Um, what do you think they have to uh, adjust if they're going to make that shift and really understand uh, how things are different within a virtual learning environment? Well, I think when we're thinking about the people who need to realize and, and, and people who need to, to react, it's the people on, if you like, our side of the fence, the instructional designers, 
and the facilitators, all the people making those decisions. And what I think they have to do is do their absolute utmost to put themselves on the other side of the fence and think about the realities that the learner population is going to face, the kind of challenges that those learners are going to have. And when you can do that, when you put yourself in the position of somebody who's going to be, and I'll use the word subjected, to six weeks of virtual learning, if you put yourself in that kind of position, it won't take you long to grasp the realities. The realities are instructional designers, you've got to design something wholly different to what worked well in the classroom. Uh, I, I'll hint at the kind of things, Joanne, I think we've got to look at dramatically reducing the learner contact time, the virtual class experience. In time sense, has got to be much reduced from an eight-hour day. We've got to find alternatives to that. And the facilitators delivering it, no matter how long it is, those facilitators have got to have a somewhat different style, relying on things that they may not have had to use in the classroom, but they will have to use in, in, in the new norm of the virtual classroom. So there's massive challenges for instructional designers, for facilitators, and for people making the decisions. All of those things have to be done with a focus on the learner. It's the learner who struggles and suffers in this kind of situation. You're very uh, on point there. I find that learners um, don't want to be on the receiving end of direct instruction in the virtual learning environment. That uh, it is not the best use of their time. Um, talk to me a little bit about engagement and, and how you think um, instructional designers have to adjust. I think we've been in triage mode, um, just trying to get something out there for the last couple of months. And I, I don't see that as sustainable. Um, and we've got to do something different. And to me, it feels like it's around engagement. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, mean, I think engagement is, is is going to be a key word here because that, that's the big challenge, isn't it? Because without the physical proximity, without the ability to be in physical contact, as it were, in the same room, you inevitably struggle for engagement. People on the other end of a virtual learning experience do have distractions. They have things getting in the way. They are prone to disengage. That can be true in a classroom experience, but it's acutely more true in a virtual experience. So I think engagement is, is the absolute key. And, and I think what we've got to avoid is kind of hoping that the facilitators will bring that magic engagement because they're good facilitators, because how they engage people, I think is going to have to be a little bit different. It, it, it you know, I, I spent myself a lot of time in, in the classroom, the original traditional classroom, and, and I now spend quite a lot of time in a virtual classroom. I know that some of the things that served me well in the classroom as a facilitator just don't work in the virtual classroom. You know, I, even down to just, you know, the look, the casual glance, the, the, the use of body language to send a message, that's impossible for you virtually in the virtual world. So facilitators are not going to be able to add the magic just because they're good facilitators. The instructional designers, I think, have got a lot of work 
to do to create something that is for the long term deliverable virtually and, and I say long term Joanne because I, I think what we've seen even in just a few short weeks or, or, or months now we've seen already a bit of a change of mindset because initially I think it was a massive push to get something out there anything anything will do just do it virtually and I think people have been seeing and learning through experience that actually what we need to do is something somewhat more fundamental than quickly enable it to be delivered virtually. That's a short-term fix to make it capable of virtual delivery. But we've got to think, I think, for the at least medium term and probably the longer term, not only is it capable of being delivered virtually, but is it going to be anywhere near the same learning experience as it used to be in the classroom? And the answer has to be yes. And there's a massive amount of work to be done to make that the case, in my opinion. What do you think is the outlook for virtual training in the next year or so? Um, we've had so much um, rubbish training go up in the last month or so as we've operated in triage mode. What do you think that outlook is for virtual training in the next year or so? I'm really concerned that we've got trash out there. How do we, how do we flex and pivot? Well, I think we've got a, a fairly short window of opportunity in that regard. Um, first of all, I mean, the reality is virtual learning is here. Like it or not, it's here and it's going to stay. You know, I think quite honestly, we are not going to see in any kind of short term a return to anything approximating normality. The next time a facilitator stands in front of a group of 20 people with a whiteboard, flip charts, and everything that they're familiar with using, that, that's, for me, I think that's a long time away, if ever. And we'll come back to that in a second. So I think the fact is it, it's here to stay. It's something we've got to respond to, recognize, and as you say, what we did initially was triage. Now, at the very latest, there's a time to be thinking about what we need to do more fundamentally to raise the standard and the quality of everything that is out there. Because if we don't, the learner population who have been, I can use the word, burnt or hurt or damaged by poor virtual learning, the, the motivation is clearly impacted. Now, sometimes you don't have a choice about it. People have got to be trained in stuff. They'll have to be trained, you know, compliance stuff and onboarding stuff, etc. It's, it's not a voluntary thing, but people's appetite and as a consequence, I'm sure the whole learning experience, I think is at risk unless instructional designers and facilitators can raise their game in the virtual space to deliver something just as meaningful, if not more meaningful, than they used to be able to deliver in the classroom. And we can't leave that for another year. We can't leave that to six months, nine months down the road because the whole learner population will be jaundiced, will be uh, cynical about the value of what they're being provided with, unless we can do something quickly. 
That's very interesting, um, especially when you think about it from the perspective that if we look back in history, when we've had um, these kinds of pandemic kinds of situations, there's often a resurgence um, of the issue uh, six to nine months later. So there is the potential uh, for an even greater need for virtual training um, coming in six months or so. If that was the case, what do instructional designers do in the next six months? Well, I think, I think we've just got to, as I say, accept it. And as a consequence, fundamentally rethink how we go about things and, and what we produce. I think that instructional designers are going to have to adopt a somewhat different mindset and a somewhat different approach to what they've historically done and done well and this sounds like I, you know i'm not meaning to criticize instructional designers as a whole here i'm just saying that there is no way that we can keep the old paradigm and and and, and expect it to ever be successful so i think there are some very specific things that instructional designers are going to have to focus on and and i would say the first of those things is to give the facilitators a chance and what I mean by that is we now have to look at everything that is planned to be delivered virtually and we have to fundamentally re-engineer it and I, I think we re-engineer it to a reduce the learner seat time that's required for what you might call synchronous learning do not give them anything like an eight-hour presentation-based training course and call it a virtual learning experience because it isn't. You have to look at that eight-hour duration. You have to be extremely, I think, hard with yourselves and say what proportion of that needs to have synchronous learning time contact. And only that proportion is what should comprise what I'd call the virtual class. Everything else, and, and by that I mean typically what we traditionally call presentation stuff, everything like that that can be done more flexibly in a different format than listening to receive information, everything that can be done differently should be done differently. So we should be looking to designing much more flexible and much more personalized learning opportunities so that for example if we have an eight-hour day I would think a good virtual design particularly for a program which is more than a single day in duration a good design would have way 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 less than eight hours of contact time it would have learner contact time of let's say let's pick a number two hours max which would be 30 minutes at the start of the day to brief the learners giving them a large period of time to organize themselves flexibly to complete certain self-directed tasks to prepare themselves to arm themselves with information to absorb fact and info and then to bring that to bear in learning events that you can justifiably say need to be done in a synchronous fashion with other people that's the time that i would call the workshop time everything else will be self-paced, self-directed, self-driven learning that adds to the variety of 
the experience for the learner. It maximizes the value of the contact time. It makes the facilitator's job actually, in a sense, a shorter day. I mean, hugely impactful time because I have to spend two hours of really impactful time helping people learn. But they should only be in contact, in my opinion, with learners when they're adding value. And I don't think a facilitator often adds value when somebody can simply assimilate the same information through a different format. The facilitator would typically be somebody who is there adding value through explaining, coaching, observing, critiquing, giving examples and bringing to life things that have been learned. Uh, that's quite a lot for me to fire off there, Joanne. I'm sorry. I just when I wound up about something, I'm afraid I I tend to tend to give it both barrels. But I think this is really really fundamental. I really like this idea of using the training to actually teach team members how to be a virtual team member. Because what you just described is that ideal day. How do I do the stuff I have to do by myself so that I'm ready to engage in a meeting and to be able to interact? And especially with new team members, I think that's really key. We can't train them in the old uh, method and then expect them to be effective team members um, in this new reality. So I love that that um, situation that you're describing there really embeds them in this new reality i, I think it, it does it actually really brings it home doesn't it i mean i think we, we we talked a lot in the past about you know making the learner responsible for their learning or owning the responsibility for their learning and this is where it, the rubber really meets the road for me because here i think we have to do that in the sense that you say you've got five hours or whatever to to, to do whatever it is and the learners have to organize themselves and have to organize themselves efficiently it may not take them five hours they may be working either individually or they may be able to organize themselves or be organized into learning cohorts there's all kinds of options but the this, the essence of it is that you're making the learners responsible for acquiring the information for assimilating the information and then in the virtual class they're applying the information and the knowledge that they've acquired. That, that's my kind of blueprint or template for effective virtual learning, just rethinking it fundamentally. I love, I love it. I think that's really insightful. So as we wind up our time together today, what would be your top two or three pieces of advice to instructional designers who are faced with rapidly designing and delivering virtual training this week? What should they do differently? Well, I mean, it's easy to say adopt a different mindset, and that's just about the hardest thing you can possibly tell anybody ever to do. But I would really counsel them, as I said, to say, just do everything you can in your power to put yourself on the other end of this experience and think what it's going to be like. Try to put yourself in the learner's seat and, and you'll begin to appreciate the challenges that you face. Um, I think I would ask instructional designers to be really, really hard on themselves and starting from the position that most, and this is a really controversial statement, Joanne, but most of what we've delivered in the classroom, as good as it was, 
won't be successful in the virtual classroom. I think if you start from that mindset and you think critically about what you're creating and what you're migrating from the classroom to the virtual classroom, you need to establish some kind of set of, I'll call them risk factors, or, or you need to heighten your awareness to certain indicators. For example, if you, the, if, I know, say 40, 40% of any given workshop is presentation, then it's not going to work in a virtual classroom. If more than 40% is presentation, it will never work in the classroom. If when you look at those instructor notes, if you don't see at least a single question per page, it will not work in the virtual classroom. If you see more than 20 slides on average on a deck of slides, it won't work in the virtual classroom. There's a set of criteria, and you know we played around with these, Joanne, you and I, looking at what those are. I've cited just three of them. But there's a checklist, we think, of things that will cause concern in an instructional designer's mind that says, you know what, we've got some challenges here. We have to be very, very different and we have to think differently. We have to fundamentally change our approach if these risk factors are present. And my experience uh, this point in time is running most workshops that I've seen against those risk factors. I haven't seen very many that pass that screen for me, meaning that a lot of things that are going out there are barely fit for purpose, if at all. Now, that's a gloomy perspective, but I think that's the reality. And, and I hope that we won't, in a year's time, be paying the price and wondering how to win back learner confidence, because that would be the worst outcome for everybody. I think you're right on the money uh, with that, Graham, and would like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Joanne. Thanks for the chance. I always enjoy the opportunity to put my, put my views forward. Thank you for listening. You're most welcome. You've been listening to the Leaders in Learning podcast by Blue Consulting and Resourcing, a weekly podcast for cutting-edge learning design. <laughs>